This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Mike Lewis, filling in for Bill Radke. Joining us today is Publicola co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett. Erica, welcome to Week in Review again. Great to be here, Mike. Uh, side note, while both Eric and I have been reporters in this town for two decades, it took us two years to figure out we live across the street from each other. <laughs> also, Just weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. Two weeks ago. Uh, also joining us today is freelance health reporter Joanne Silberner. Joanne, welcome to the show. Thank you. And lastly, but never leastly, KUOW arts and culture reporter Mike Davis. Mike, not only thanks for sitting in with us, but uh, thank you for helping us meet the show's minimum re- required mic count. That's perfect. That's perfect. Great to be here with you, Mike. So we had this week, um, and obviously we're going to lean pretty heavily on Erica on this uh, first segment. Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell gave his second State of the City address. He broadly outlined his optimistic vision for the city, so it so solved pervasive issues with the unhoused, with crime, while maintaining a civic effort toward fairness and equity and how it solves these problems. This is a little bit of what he had to say. I'm bullish on downtown. Let me, let me say it again. I am bullish on our downtown. 100,000 residents, over 320,000 jobs. The undisputed economic engine and cultural hub of our region. All right. So while idealistic, the speech did get a little bit of pushback. Erica, you spent enough time in City Hall to legally establish homesteader rights. <laughs> and you've listened to more states of the city than anyone should endure. Your story in Publicola frames the speech as eh, long on platitudes, but a little short on substance. Can you walk us through what the speech had and what it lacked? Yeah, I mean, I was in the room for the speech, which was um, a nice change from pandemic era speeches. Right. Um, and so I got a sense of and, you know, my headline was the state of the city is vibes. And, you know, I meant um, in part by that, that. The vibes in the room were great. Um, people were really happy with the speech. A guy behind me just kept going, strong finish, strong finish <laughs> um, after the end of it. And so uh, so it was a very positive reception. But on reflection and, you know, looking at what he actually said, th- there's not a lot new there. I mean, a lot of it was very similar to his first State of the City speech uh, made, you know, before he'd really started as mayor um, and gotten going, you know, we're going to we're going to revitalize downtown, we're going to deal with homelessness, we're going to improve public safety. um, And, uh, you know, and things are going to be great and getting better. And, uh, you know, I mean, when he says he's bullish on downtown, the the things that he actually talked about were all very speculative and very kind of in the may do category as opposed to the plan category. You know, he said he may, the the city may think about doing um, conversions of office space into housing downtown, and there's going to be some sort of design contest for that. Um, they there may be uh, an arts district that may be happening. It could even mean a 24-7 street. And as a friend um, who was watching the um, 
the speech online uh, texted me, you know, this all sounds great. Too bad none of it's ever going to happen. <laughs> so, uh, so that was that was kind of my takeaway. A lot of you know, a lot of talk about bold action, but the actual kind of substantive proposals were things like, I'm going to have a plan to plant trees. We're finally going to get the white paper out that was due last year for this uh, this new public safety department, um, and a lot of um, we're planning to have a plan. Mike, let me throw this to you for just a quick moment. Is it actually fair to judge a politician's speech on its platitude to substance ratio? Or don't we kind of expect some of this when, when somebody gets up to talk to us, a especially little, a public figure? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. I mean, come on. When Bruce Harrell gives a speech, at the end, we all want to put our hands in the middle and then cheer <laughs> ourselves out. That he delivers a great speech. But I, I think that, I mean, Erica literally took my notes. She could have read my notes off of my paper. I mean... More money for cops, more foot traffic downtown, less visible homelessness. That's what he campaigned on. That's what he promised. Now, however you feel about those ideas specifically, I think it's fair to say he hasn't really delivered no matter which side of the fence you're on. Like encampments are still everywhere. Downtown is still struggling to get back going. So it's like, eh. (laughs) Well, let me let me ask. Let me ask to, to Joanne then. Is there when you are downtown? Uh, and I assume you're downtown from time to time. Uh, when you are downtown, have you seen anything different in the, over the past two years? Does it look like a different downtown to you than it did sort of at the peak of the pandemic? No, <laughs> not not really. Um, uh, you know, stores are closed. I mean, things are better now that people aren't, you know, actively out right. in the streets uh, protesting. But I, I don't see much happening. And and. That brings up the the public safety department. We're at a white paper on that. I mean, hasn't that been in the works since Jenny Durkin? Uh, Mike, yeah. Downtown has changed. As the arts reporter in the room, I can tell you, I'm downtown all the time. I go to plays all the time. I go to galleries all the time. That stuff is back open. Now, if we're talking about revenue, if we're talking about the economy, if we're talking about tourism getting back to where How about just the optics? How about when you walk through downtown? Does it look different to you now than it did two years ago or does it look the same as it did in when 2019? you leave pioneer square yes yeah fair enough fair yeah enough. and i i work in pioneer square right. um and heading down there later today and yeah it, it it feels different i mean you know i think that a lot of this kind of seattle is dying seattle is dead stuff is overblown if you read about it in the newspaper you know nike closing i mean who how many of us went to the nike store on a regular basis um, but but the but the feel is different and it does feel more lively. It's not dead like at five o'clock at night like it was, frankly, when I moved here 20 years ago. Um, it's not 100 percent back. But um, but I, you know, like I said, I mean, I work Pioneer Square actually feels better. It feels it? Um, it feels more lively um, and it doesn't it never felt scary to me, but it did feel very vacant and windswept and like tumbleweeds blowing through. Um, and it doesn't feel that way to me as much anymore. It's Are we- funny that you say that. Because I've never felt unsafe either. And I think my pushback on the Seattle is dying crowd is that they're trying to solve problems with unrealistic solutions. They want to take all of our resources and like give them to the police and and scare people from walking around downtown. When for folks like myself who spend a lot of time down there, it's not as scary as they try to make people believe. Well, I don't know that it's scary, but I, I just walked through there on the way here and there's nobody there. Well, let me let me ask this though. I mean, to your point exactly, and I was gonna let me throw this at, at Erica. How much 
solution, and, and, and Bruce Harrell has been talking about this for a while, how much solution are we embedding in this idea of employees coming back to downtown? I mean, are we, de- are we depending disproportionately on this to solve a whole bunch of these issues? Yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing about the speech is I think that um, the mayor wanted to have it both ways. He wants to say we're going to do things like have more housing downtown because office workers are not necessarily coming back. But he also applauded the fact that Amazon workers are now being forced to go back to work um, over many people's objections um, three days a week. Um, He's really uh, into the idea of bringing more city workers back for more days. Um, And so, you know, I think in his heart, does Bruce Harrell believe that the future of downtown is kind of like the past? I think he does. Um, I think that, you know, this this sort of feels to to him and a lot of people at the city like a temporary blip and that people are just going to go back to normal. But I don't think that's that's very likely. And, you know, neither do a lot of economists who are much smarter about this stuff than I am. Well, getting into the real people part of it. Do we really think this Amazon thing is going to happen? Are they going to come back three days a week? Well, I don't know that they're going to have – some of the employees are not going to have much of a choice. I mean, I think that this is – I mean, as, a, as an aside, uh, John Cook at GeekWire once made, I think, a really excellent point about this, that he sees this larger thing as the tech industry resetting what employee expectations should be. Like they're taking advantage of a, of a dip in the economy and saying, hey, the world is changing for you. Let us show you how. And the back to work is some of that. But, Mike? I think that I think that where we stand right now is somewhere in the middle of what Joanne and Erica – are saying. I think that at night there are things to do downtown. There are plays, there are shows, there are events. But I also think that if you go downtown right now, it will be dead. And I used to work in Pioneer Square and I can tell you, uh, during the lunch hour, you used to have to wait in line at every single restaurant. Like You walk by the bus stops, there were just people everywhere and there was a vibrancy downtown when everyone was coming to work 40 hours a week. Hybrid isn't going to solve that. Hybrid isn't going to bring that back. I don't think we'll ever be to that place where you're walking downtown during the lunch hour. Pushing through crowds. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, so let's talk then about specific within the embedded within the mayor's speech is this idea, the plan. And Erica knows a lot about this, the partnership for zero. The initiative is about dealing with the persistent problem of the unhoused in Seattle and and hopefully maybe. The crime that is that is related to that and maybe the crime that is not related to that. Uh, Erica, can you talk us a little bit through Partnership for Zero and how it appears to be evolving over the course of the last couple of years? Yeah. So Partnership for Zero is this um, this partnership that was launched a little over a year ago that is a public-private partnership. A bunch of corporations um, and foundations gave money a total pledge of $10 million, although only about half of that has been budgeted, um, to essentially eliminate visible homelessness downtown by taking everyone who's living in tents and on the streets and getting them into permanent housing. That was the plan. Um, it has, and, and the idea was to hire a bunch of system navigators, peer navigators with lived experience of homelessness to um, essentially walk people through the whole process of being you know, unhoused, getting ID, et cetera, et cetera, all the way to housing and beyond. Take them entirely through the system. Yep. Right. Um, and that is not Really, what has happened so far, they're definitely, you know, very generously, they are behind schedule. Um, They've housed about 50 people so far out of about 1,000 that they say are living unsheltered downtown. Um, They've put about about 100 or so more into shelter. But, you know, aspects of the plan have changed. The system advocates didn't work out exactly as they had originally planned. There's They're learning a lot of lessons. Let me ask a quick uh, clarification on that. When they talk about 
getting people housed, and they get talk about another group of people that are put in a shelter. Create, let, let us know, what, what do you mean by the distinction between the two? Right. Well, the original idea, as I understand it, is that they were going to be housed and that people were going to be offered three different housing options, like three different apartments, and they would go around and show them these apartments, and they would pick one. Um, and that that was never a very practical idea um, to, to do on the time frame, like within a year, um, which is what they originally planned. At this point, they were supposed to be getting close to sort of maintaining um, a, a tent-free downtown, and we're obviously nowhere near that yet. Right. Um, now they're putting more people into shelter, and that shelter is generally hotels, so they get hotel vouchers to just go stay in a hotel while they're waiting for housing to come through. So that's about 150 people total out of a thousand. Right. Um, so it's a very slow process. They say that they're they're learning and they're you know making the system more efficient and that it'll get faster, um, but that you know all very much remains to be seen. Well, so Mike, when you hear about this and you see that the city essentially has this sort of grand idea that has, if I understand Erica correctly, has kind of backslid into hotel vouchers. What do you think? Um. I think that it was always vibes uh, to borrow from America. I think, I think that they, I think they presented us with a plan that was unrealistic from like right out of the gate, and I think that it puts us in a position now where it kind of makes it hard to to talk about accountability or or to look at parts of this plan that fell through because this is a plan that we never believed in. They were never going to get homelessness down to thirty ish people. In a year's time. So making an outlandish promise like that and then not delivering, we're we're right where we thought we would be. And, Joanne, obviously there's a strong component of the entire uh, unhoused uh, situation in Seattle that is is healthcare related, I mean, which would be your area of expertise. When you see the city only able to essentially 50, I think, right, Erica, 50 people actually in housing, Mm -hmm. uh, another 100 people in 56, another 100 in shelter, I mean – what what is your speculation on the outcome for the rest of the the eight hundred and fifty people uh, who are not? Well, it's it's actually the same for the people who are housed now, and that's better mental health uh, uh, facilities around. I mean, I'm a big believer in housing first. You have to get people off the street, but then you have to address what put them on the street and what kept them on the street. And if you don't do that, they're going to end up back on the street. And then instead of the 850 plus 150, you're going to be back to the 1,000. And to her point then, Erica, is the city addressing those underlying problems or is the city just merely trying to move people, change the optics without changing the the actual issue? Well, I would uh, push back on the idea that most people who are chronically homeless necessarily have severe behavioral health conditions. Um, There's a lot of reasons people become homeless and stay homeless. And we're talking about folks that have been homeless for a long time for the most part. So um, so I'd I'd push back on that a little bit. Um, The city uh, does not fund, you know, health uh, or behavioral health, but the um, the county is putting a measure on the ballot to do crisis centers, um, which would allow people with, you know, immediate crisis level mental health issues to go into a place and be seen immediately. That's on the ballot in, I believe, April. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, the spending on mental health has always been, um, you know, a huge, uh, right. you know, missed opportunity yeah. um, in uh, in this area, and we don't do enough of it. Um, so there's there's movement, but you know, those behavioral crisis centers are all not going to pr- produce that many new beds, and we're losing beds all the time. We've we've had initiatives before; they just or promises to beef up mental health uh, uh, access, and I just don't see it making a difference. When when we look at partnership for zero, uh, for example, 
it's not the only zero-based initiative on the agenda with the city. Uh, During the previous administration, the city lost Vision Zero, which was a plan to try to eliminate traffic accidents. And this is some of this actually has directly to do with with the number of accidents in downtown, eliminate traffic accidents, particularly pedestrian cyclist deaths in the city. And broadly, the plan was to change crosswalk signs and enhance pedestrian safety to lower speed limits to add speed bumps. But in subsequent years, and this is, you know, a a little bit similar to to the to the uh, partnership for zero. The rates have actually gotten worse um, since since Vision Zero uh, was launched. So the city did as cities do. It launched a self-examination of Vision Zero. The examination, rather than backing away from the program, doubled down on it. The conclusion of the just-released assessment, and thank you, Erica, for pointing it out, uh, the just-released assessment of Vision Zero is, in effect, more Vision Zero. Erica, uh, you are a person who walks around Seattle. What worked with Vision Zero? Do you feel safer as a pedestrian? I mean, there certainly are some things in here that I think have really helped, particularly um, this thing called um, leading pedestrian intervals, which is, you know, basically when you get a walk signal, you can walk before the cars go, um, which gives them a little time to notice you so they don't hit you. Um, I think those have been really successful, and they do talk about doubling down on that. Um, but, you know, I mean, this report is uh, is basically like we did a good job but not enough of a good job. Right. And it's not it's not really – they called it a top-to-bottom review, and that's uh, the actual title of the report, which I find kind of comical. But, um, you know, it's uh, it's not – I mean, it's a lot of backslapping and congrats, self-congratulation. Um, the momentum building actions that they that they propose, you know, there's five of them for the near turn. And the first one is to maybe think about some more uh, no right on reds uh, downtown in time for tourists. State is season. looking at that as all, also, right? Yeah. Yep, yep. But I mean, in, in this particular one, it's so limited. It's literally downtown and it says tourist season and in time for uh, Major League Baseball all-star game. So it's it's like so small ball to use a sports metaphor, which I'm sure Bruce Harrell would appreciate um, <laughs> that, you know, I, I don't really you know, I, it, it's nothing. I mean, as Tammy Morales, city council member pointed out, there's nothing about road design that allows people to drive so fast and makes it, you know, feel safe to drive fast. Um, there's nothing in here about sort of big substantive changes. It's like, let's have, you know, more no right on red signals. Let's have more of these, you know, kind of small you know, small scale action items focused on people's individual behavior, which isn't ultimately the problem. All right, Mike, I'm going to throw it to you. We've talked about two city programs with zero in the title and zero in the mission statement. Zero isn't in the results. In some cases, it's trended farther from zero than before the initiative. Just should we stop using zero (laughs) in our operating language? Are we do we have an overpromising problem here? I think we do. I think I think we have a we have a hashtag problem. I think it's it's one Seattle. It's visions. Are, it's all of these. It's all of these snappy phrases that sound cool but don't actually lead to anything. No, we shouldn't call any of this zero because we're not even headed to zero. What are we doing? We may be headed the other direction from zero. When when uh, uh, when you look at the uh, at Vision Zero, any anyone here at the on the panel. Do any of you feel like it's been fundamentally safer? I would say one thing that uh, in the Vision Zero, I do a lot of walking in Seattle. I do a lot of walking in downtown, as you do, Mike. And I do think that the delay on the the the, the stoplight delay, uh, different from the pedestrian crossing delay, has actually been kind of effective. I think that people getting out into the intersection, weirdly enough, makes them safer because they're not stepping off the curb and into traffic. I'm not sure what else about Vision Zero actually has worked. Any of you did? Do any of you feel 
fundamentally safer when you're walking around Seattle now than you did prior to Vision Zero? Only what you mentioned, and that's because that's so noticeable. I right. know people yeah, who yeah. have no idea what Vision Zero is, but they notice that delay, and that delay is helpful. But once we get outside of that, I, I don't got much for you. Erica? Um, yeah, I mean, I uh, one of the things that they tout a bunch in this report is lowering speed limits to 25 miles an hour. And if you're on uh, Aurora or Rainier Avenue South, um, that speed limit is essentially meaningless. Like it might as well just be, say, 52. I mean, Excellent it's, point. <laughs> right. it's, I mean, you can put as many signs, you can have as many billboard campaigns as you want, but it's not going to change behavior if you don't narrow the road and slow people down. Traffic enforcement is not really matching what the city's changing as far as regu- regulation goes. So. Also contained, and this is in the backdrop to to Bruce Harrell's speech, is this idea of rethinking downtown. There's an interesting story. GeekWire reporters Kurt Schlosser and Taylor Soper this week went out in search of these ideas to revitalize downtown. And they talked to architects and civic planners and activists and the people who feast on a diet of pie-in-the-sky ideas, such as as ordinary ones like make downtown safer, make it more affordable, add childcare, to a complete revamping of how we think about outdoor spaces with rooftop gardens and sky bridges. Mike, when you look at these ideas, do any of them seem like a possible path forward for Seattle? Making, uh, making living downtown affordable, I think, is something that could really work. I think for families that have been priced out for folks who would be interested in living there if they didn't think you had to be rich or in the tech industry to be able to do so. I also think creating artist lofts would be a great idea down there. Getting more creatives that actually live downtown would increase the vibrancy of the neighborhood just by having them living in those neighborhoods. So I definitely take the arts approach to that question. Let me ask you a follow-up on this, Jen. And so getting the creatives downtown, I would assume you would see this as fundamentally linked to making it more affordable, correct? Absolutely. I mean, how do you get a group of people who don't make a lot of money with yes. their work? Well, that's that's a big issue in the arts community in Seattle right now is the fact that artists who want to work in Seattle can't afford to live in Seattle. And they're always looking for housing opportunities that are like earmarked for artists. If we put some of those in downtown, I think that it would also create opportunities to invite people who don't live downtown to come back downtown by having more opportunities for arts and cultural experiences. Well, does anybody think the social housing initiative that just passed, is that going to make a difference? Great question. I hope so. It sounds to it sounds to me like it's a plan to make a plan. Like we voted and now somebody's going to come in and create a plan. But it will be nice if it actually went somewhere. It's a plan for a group to make a plan. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, realistically, you know, the, the social housing uh, public developer is probably not going to be building downtown. Um, downtown's pretty built up. I mean, and it's, you know, can also acquire housing, but that's probably also going to be, you know, smaller scale housing in places like Capitol Hill. So I don't know that it'll necessarily have a direct impact downtown if it succeeds and if they are able to actually get funding and build housing. Well, let me follow up on that then. Let's, when we go back to downtown, I mean, one of the things that that's talked about a lot, in fact, uh, Bruce Harrell mentioned this in his, in his talk, in his speech, is the idea of conversion of existing empty office space into potential housing. How realistic, uh, Eric, in your opinion, how realistic is this as an idea? And is it in conflict with the idea of also simultaneously suggesting we need people back in downtown who are employees? How do you you see this? I mean, I think it's realistic if you take the steps to do it. But, I mean, what what Harold talked about – 
in his speech was changing the zoning code. And I don't think the zoning code actually needs to change. Housing is allowed downtown. What needs to change is the structure, you know, the structures themselves, you know, making buildings, places. I mean, you can't just go live in an office space, right? right? So that's a lot of construction. That would require incentives. That would require money. Again, things that are concrete, that are actions that you have to take, not just vibes that you have to express. So if uh, if he promised a suite of legislation um, coming to make that happen, I would be more confident. Um, but right now, just saying maybe it would be cool to have a design competition um, is a long way away from actually making it happen. Yeah, the the I think that that design competition is a joke. I think that the people hired to do the job of figuring out housing should do the job of figuring out housing, not <laughs> yeah. kicking the can down the road and yeah. outsourcing their responsibilities. Yeah. I'm also... I'm just curious. This is just a question. Maybe this is a question for Erica. Do we really believe that the mayor wants housing downtown in the first place? Because to me, it sounds like what we really want downtown is workers that can spend money. We want tourists that can spend money. We overblown Nike Town leaving and all of these things. Because I'll tell you one thing, Mike, that I've done since I've been able to work from home. I've spent so much more money in my own community. When I came downtown every day and I was in that lunch crowd that you mentioned and I had to wait in those lines, I spent all my right. money downtown. Now I spend my money locally. I go to restaurants in my own neighborhood. I go to markets in my own neighborhood. And now my neighborhood benefits from people like me. The mayor seems to want to take that neighborhood money and throw it back to downtown. So my question is, does he really want people living there or does he want more tourists and more workers? That is such a good point, Mike. I mean, like, same thing. I mean, I I work at home and I have for many years, but I would come downtown a lot more to go to city council meetings, you know, things like that. And I think that, you know, I think that part of, you know, revisioning downtown or whatever probably does have to mean uh, to be successful to mean you know, housing and other uses of space down there because people are spending money in their neighborhoods. But I think every mayor, and particularly this mayor, you know, wants to really overemphasize downtown as a place, you know, a business, as a place to, you know, where you need to sort of be obligated to buy your lunch every day. And, um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't particularly that doesn't resonate with me as a person who lives in a neighborhood and wants to support neighborhood businesses. But I think that you're right. I think that ultimately, Probably what the mayor envisions, um, as I was saying before, like, just let's go, but let's get it back to when things were good. And, you know, and and downtown was thriving. And, you know, because because frankly, neighborhood businesses, like if those business districts succeed and if there's more demand for neighborhood businesses, that means a lot of zoning changes and single family neighborhoods that, you know, the mayor and his supporters are not going to support either. All right. And also, I don't know that we have much of a choice in the matter of downtown because it was the fastest growing residential neighborhood for the past decade. So they're there and the mayor's going to have to figure out something. All right. We're going to take a short break and we will be back with, with Week in Review in just a few minutes. You rely on this podcast to stay informed and connected with your local community. And we rely on you. Without listener support, this show simply wouldn't exist. Be a part of the team that makes this show possible by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute. Donate at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thank you. Welcome back to Week in Review. I'm Mike Lewis filling in uh, somewhat ably for Bill Radke. We've got Publicola co-founder Erica Barnett, freelance health reporter Joanne Silberner, and of course KUW arts and culture reporter Mike 
Davis. You can also stream this show on YouTube and on Facebook. Access to abortion and making Washington a healthcare sanctuary were prominent in the news last week. Then late Thursday, Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson joined other states in a lawsuit to force the Federal Drug Administration to provide consistent and better access to the common abortion pill. Joanne, we're going to start with you on this one. How important is this lawsuit? Well, there's there's a fight going on now about you know does the FDA um, was it what is was its approval of the first part, it's a the abortion pill is actually a two part pill was its approval of the first part uh, right and good and it's coming from you know it's coming at the state level looking at a national organization mm-hmm. you know the FDA and you know it looked you know but before the last few years you'd say oh well of course the you know the, the FDA is going to have prominence but it's not a done deal it it's um so there are two things going on right now today judicially one is this idea of the FDA shouldn't have approved it and the other is the you know what uh Bob Ferguson and the others are doing and I, there's a risk that that these the first part of the pill is going to go away Let's let's back up for a minute. What does it mean, given the the whole battery of initiatives? What does it mean for Washington State to become a healthcare sanctuary, if you will? Well, it's going to uh, cost some money. You know, th- these training programs are somewhat limited. You know, they can't just take everybody from nearby states and other p- their physicians and other health providers in Idaho who have come in to. You, you know, to these Washington state programs. And at some point, we're going to run out of capacity to train them. So, you know, then they have the choice. Some of them are actually moving here because they were there. Some of the people who are already trained are moving here because this is where they can do what they know how to do and what they believe in. But if they're going to go back to their states, they may not be able to do it. And in fact, a lot of what's going on now with providers in some of the states where abortion has been severely limited, but still allowed to, you know, in cases of an already occurring miscarriage or in other cases where the fetus is is going to either be born dead or die soon after, it's allowed, but the provider's reasonably are a little bit nervous because there are bounties on turning in people who are doing abortions that don't come under that. There's the idea of putting everything back into the judicial system that used to be in the medical system and letting the judicial system decide. Erica, when you see the, the, the various initiatives that are in Washington State and the idea, again, of Washington State essentially becoming a training ground and a, and a providing ground, uh, for other states, because we happen to be flanked by one state that's, you know, a couple of states that may that are probably going to backslide at least to some degree on abortion access. Do you think that this is what Washington State needs to be doing at this particular point? Well, I do think we need to be doing it because nobody else is. I mean, it's uh, you know, I mean, increasingly there are going to be sanctuary states, both for people seeking abortions, you know, and for people wanting to at least have the training to provide Medical miscarriage, training, yeah. yeah, miscarriage management in other states that where abortions and miscarriage management is abortion, but um, it's not called that, and Catholic hospitals will sometimes allow it. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I will note. Though a cautionary um, note in Washington State, 41 percent or might be more of our hospitals are run by uh, Catholic institutions. And so they do not offer abortions and offer only limited, um, you know, miscarriage management. So um, so, you know, so it's 
we're not, you know, we're not saints here in terms of, you know, being a sanctuary for access. Well, let me let me follow up on that because there's something there that I think that wasn't declared. KUW has a terrific story on this uh, today. The idea of medical training, because what happens when access is denied in, in any given state is that the actual training of people able to do this stuff also is 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 a uh, I I don't know it's not eliminated but it definitely is mitigated. What how important is it for Washington to be sort of a training ground for people to provide this sort of medical care? Well, I mean, it, you know, if nobody in their in these states are providing it then, you know, it's I th- I think it is very important and we do have limited capacity to do that in in medical schools, but you know, I mean, that just to, to kind of you know, bring the point home. I mean, when we're talking about these lawsuits um, over abortion pills, um, you know, which very well could outlaw half of the abortion pill process, which is not medically indicated and all of that, we're talking about very early abortions. And so everything else is surgical. So that and that is the kind of thing you need training for, you know, even if pills become, you know, available and, you know, the attorney general Washington prevails and everything is, you know, a little more settled. I mean, there's still this issue of surgical abortions, and uh, and that's what the training is for, and it is very necessary. And it's also good. You know, it's it's a ten week. The, the pills are up to ten weeks. So if you're at eight weeks, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're at eight weeks and you're looking around to go somewhere else, or you're in another state, you're in a state where it's not available, you're going to go over the ten week mark pretty quickly. Right, and also just the added expense of trying to get to somewhere else. Right, and, and and the resources, yeah, it's an enormous. Mike, when, when you read about this, what strikes you as who is going to be most affected by, uh, by a restricted access to, to this sort of medical care, to abortion access? Well, I mean, I'm no expert, but if you live in a state where abortion is illegal, it's going to affect you. And I right. think that that's going to go. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter anything else because babies affect all of us. That's, right. that's a human thing. I think that what the state of Washington is doing is critical. I think allowing professionals from other states to come to Washington and still get that training and still have that training is critical to communities, probably more important in communities outside of our state than in our state because you need those doctors to be able to go back and have that training and I guess this is me taking my journalist my journalist hat off but optimistically speaking I would hope that abortions won't be illegal forever and if we get some laws reversed we need professionals who are ready to step in immediately well John let me ask ask you then I mean I I think to, to Mike's point the idea that and some 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 folks who are who are not for universal uh, abortion access would suggest that this is the way it always should have been handled. It should be it should be different from states should be able to make the decision on whether or not. And that obviously that doesn't match with earlier Supreme Court decisions. It certainly matches with later ones. What do you think? I mean, do you think that the states should be deciding this or do you think that this should be a universal thing provided in every state? I think I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that healthcare access, and, and this is a healthcare issue to me, should be universal and, and shouldn't be state by, a state-by-state state decision. And that's a political uh, analysis on my part, or maybe not political. I'm not, it's, you know, but speaking as a healthcare reporter who believes that everyone should have access to healthcare, and that this is a healthcare issue, I think it should be national. 
Erica, when you see the Bob Ferguson, I mean, sometimes he's been accused of of not finding a lawsuit he didn't like um, <laughs> because he's, sure. he's entered into a lot of them. But in this particular one, um, the idea about the FDA and a restricted access uh, to the pill, uh, to, to the abortion pill, what do you do you think that this was one that he should have joined? Or do you feel like this is one that he was just essentially doing, you know, a reflexive Bob Ferguson joining another lawsuit. Well, I mean, I should say, I think a lot of the lawsuits Bob Ferguson has joined in have been good lawsuits to join. Fair um, and, you know, I'm not against an attorney general being a little bit um, litigious. active. <laughs> yeah, litigious. I mean, exactly. Proactive. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, so he's not the only, I haven't read the lawsuit, but he's not the only attorney general. Um, I believe it's 12 um, mm-hmm. that have joined this lawsuit so far. Um, you know, it's, it's just... Um, it's just a slippery slope. I mean, with with banning, you know, one half of the protocol for abortions, um, right. you know, it becomes more dangerous. Um, it's actually a shorter time period. It's nine weeks that you can just use the one pill um, that it's indicated for. Um, and and it's not as safe. Um, it, it doesn't, it, you know, you're sort of doing it in a different way. And the next thing that will happen is they will figure out a way to ban the second pill, even though that pill is, you know, used off label sometimes. And it's, it's you know, it does other, it, it serves other purposes medically. Um, but, you know, it, it's not like they're going to stop with just the one. And I, I, you know, and I saw I saw a story this week from the AP that I just really um, was, you know, kind of infuriated by that said, you know, essentially women will still be able to get abortions. Well, women can't get abortions. People can't get abortions in a lot of states right now. And to say, oh, well, at least they have the second pill still um, is just kind of ignoring the whole history of abortion rights in this country. Um, you know, including, you know, the time when everybody said, well, they'll never overturn Roe v. v. Wade. Well, they did. So let's not just kind of make these assumptions that, you know, if we don't push back on stuff like this, it'll be fine. Then also this idea of second guessing the FDA. Now, I've had my problems with the FDA recently. They've they've come up with some screwy decisions. But if, if you set a precedent where you can go after a drug that's been FDA approved on a state by state basis or even on a national basis, what other drugs are, you know, it's going to set a pattern. It's opening a door that I don't think should be opened. Well, to your point about other drugs, let's talk a little bit about what Washington State is trying to do regarding access to, to other med- regular prescription medication. And let's go specifically with insulin. Washington State is trying to mandate price. And now we've all heard, read the stories about insulin, what insulin costs to make, and then what it, we are charged for, uh, for insulin. And obviously, that is essential to health for a whole bunch of people uh, in Washington State, not to mention the country, not to mention the world. When you see the states trying to essentially dictate the price of a pharmaceutical, do you think that this is something that's within a state's power to do effectively? I mean, it's a lot of a lot of the push has been let's do this federally and let's make it universally inexpensive, especially with the federal buying power. Can Washington State actually have an effect on insulin prices? Well, it, you know, Washington State plays a big role as a healthcare purchaser. It's you know through Apple Health and also through state employees. There's a lot of people insured that way, and that's where that's where Washington State has entered this. It's controlling the prices there with private insurance, not so much. And Mike, when you see the issue of let's just say healthcare, when people are at literally making decisions between groceries and their pharmaceuticals or housing issues like that, uh, this issue stretches well beyond insulin being affordable. Correct? Absolutely. the The issue is capitalism. Period. 
capitalism, I, I heard a smart economist say capitalism is great for things you want, but it's terrible for things you need. <laughs> like, we can buy all the frivolous stuff that we want at any given moment. But you talking about insulin specifically just illustrates capitalism gets in the way of health. Capitalism gets in the way of our livelihoods. And I don't I don't even believe that it should be on the states to regulate this. It should be federal. It's just that's a scary thing to say right now because where we are with the feds. So it's just a it's a tough time. It's a tough time to be an American right now. And all that's happened federally on insulin, you know, the the Democrats were pushing for the Inflation Reduction Act for everyone to be capped at thirty five dollars a month, and all they were able to get was Medicare. Right. And it right. seemed like our state was leaning on the feds to get that through so that we could just keep it rolling. And then it, it didn't happen. So yeah. I think we're in a place right now where individual states have to step up. Somebody has to do something. Erica, when you when you see these issues, when you see Washington state enter into the fray on affordable pharmaceuticals and affordable um, prescriptions, do you think that Washington State? I mean, it's got a, obviously a, a lot on the list of things that Washington State is being asked to do at this particular juncture. Do you feel like this one should be like it? You know, near the top of of, of Jay Inslee's list. Well, I what I mean, I would flip that even and say, why is it? Why why do the Republicans in Congress want insulin in particular to be out of you know out of the price range of so many Americans? I mean, it just seems like such a losing political issue. If nothing else, if you're just a craven politician, um, so many people have diabetes um, in this country and need insulin. Um, so I I just I find that bizarre. I do think I mean I often you know I'm from Texas and um, and before. That, that Mississippi. So like two of the worst states for all of this stuff, you know, in battleground states on all these issues we're talking about, including healthcare prices. And I often feel very lucky that I live here. Um, because uh, I think we, I mean, just because everything is now sort of atomized at the state level and we do have to pass these laws that, you know, keep things affordable um, at the state level, um, you know, I just feel very lucky and I feel um, very sad that we don't live in a country where everybody is lucky. Um, and so, you know, I think if the state uh, can do it, they should do it. And they should, you know, they should make it um, not a matter of, you know, debate every year, but a uh, but a permanent thing. Right. And I think it's worth mentioning that when you look at how it's been pushed through the Washington state legislature, it's been people who have children or relatives with diabetes. They get it. And that's, that's what astounds me on the, on the federal level. There have got to be some Republicans out there who... Are in you know who understand how important insulin is and you know because of family issues the way we have it here why I don't know why it hasn't gained any any kind of traction there well I wonder the same thing about addiction a lot too um, with these sort of you know throw them in jail approaches to addiction right. that you see from Republicans nationally um, I mean everybody has addiction you know w- within their families or within a, one or two degrees of them um, in you know in their lives and and yet. We keep proposing bad ideas. Well, abortion is in the same place. So I think that Republicans, they, they take a lot of stances that you think would be losing stances, but it seems like the, the harder they stand, the, the more successful they are with their constituency. All right. We're going to take another short break. We'll be back with Week in Review in just a few minutes. All 
I'm Mike Lewis. I'm filling in for Bill Radke this week on Week in Review. Joining us are Publicola co-founder Erica Barnett, freelance health reporter Joanne Silberner, and KUW arts and culture reporter Mike Davis, who is going to be on the hot seat for this session. <laughs> All right. And you can also uh, uh, stream the show on YouTube and Facebook. Mike, the... I guess you could fa- fairly call it controversial. Artificial intelligence software, ChatGDP, it's one of the many that are actually out there right now, has been heavily debated for its role in the classrooms and in journalism with its limitations still being tested. But you reported that ChatGDP is becoming part of the conversation in the art world. Tell us more. Yeah, I met, I met a guy. Uh, a local guy, Carl Stetton. An actual person? A, a, real, a real person, and I, I, I thought I was going to uh, hate this guy. I was prepared. I was prepared to badger this guy as a reporter. I was going to go hard on him, and, and he was so charming. I couldn't do it. He wrote a book in seven hours using chat GPT. Mm. It was published The one sale. published on Amazon, correct? Yeah. That fast. Um, I was supposed to meet him on a Friday. We met, didn't get the interview. I met him the following Monday, and he had already published his second book. And I'm like, whoa, what's going oh. on? And you know- did you read either book? I read. I read his first book. I yeah. read his first book. It was. Uh, it was interesting. It was interesting. I would say, I don't think authors should be afraid, and I think that that's that's the place that I've landed. And I'm so curious to know what, what my esteemed panelists think. I know what I think. I've reported. I'm just curious what everyone else thinks. But I'm not afraid anymore. Mike Chat GPT can imitate us, but it can never be us. Like we're we're better than the machine today. Don't ask me about tomorrow. <laughs> Erica, what do you think? Yeah, well, the machine, unfortunately, I mean, it's just us, right? And and this is, I mean, as a journalist, you know, I've done, I've played around with it quite a bit doing, you know, nonfiction, but nonfiction. And, you know, all it's doing is recycling, you know, a sort of random assortment of things that it draws from. And so, you know, you ask it to write a story and it will either make up a quote. Usually it makes up quotes. Um, sometimes it'll draw a quote from, you know, a previously posted story that somebody else got, which is copyright infringement. Um, and so, you know, I mean, there's just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about, um, about journalism or art. I mean, you're talking about science fiction. I mean, I, we, we could have like a whole offline conversation about like why science fiction requires, you know, just the kind of brilliance of a human brain to work and to cohere. Um, and yeah, I think, um, I think recycling um, a random assortment of ideas from the internet um, is, I'm not going to say never, because you know, uh, but but in but in the next uh, ten years or so, I'm not I'm not too worried. What do you think, though? And let me let me ask you this first, Joanne. What do you think about this as an idea? Now, this is not just Chat GDP. This is also Mid Journey. This is all kinds of things that are doing visual arts as well as uh, textual arts. Do you think that someone like me, for example, putting in X data, parameters, questions, and then it creating the the art. Do you think that that is classically, as we understand it, art? No. No, not at all. Uh, and I want to ask Mike that. You know, there there are programs where you can sort of deprogram something that was, you know, look at something and, and run it through and say, was this done by a computer? And there was a teacher on KUOW who said that she had tried it on a few things, and it wasn't 100% accurate. It got fooled every once in a while, but uh, not, not 100%. Can, can you – are there programs that will look at a piece of art and say, oh, this was – will recognize it as generated by a computer? I am not aware of a program that can do it the same way that it's being done in the classroom. And I do think that those are separate issues. I think students finding a way to not have to write their term papers. (laughs) Has been since the beginning of time anyway. And when I I spoke to a teacher 
in my reporting. And that's literally what he said. He said, uh, easy bib. And he, he listed all of these things that kids have done. He said, kids will always cheat, especially in college. This is just the new way that they're doing it. I think in art, the biggest problem is copyright infringement. I think that when you, especially with the illustrations, some of these programs will kick out an illustration that will still have the original author's signature on it. So it's like they stole it. Um, Getty Images actually has a lawsuit right now, and it's not against OpenAI. It's against a different software, but they they hit. 12 million images from from Getty's library and Getty's like nah those are ours so copyright infringement will be a thing moving forward we just need to see a case hit the Supreme Court but to answer your question Mike no absolutely not you yourself are not about to get on a program if you've never done art and be able to create art better than any artist and even the artists that I've met some of whom exclusively use AI software now they were all artists already. So, like, they're using this as a tool. As a new tool. Yeah, so it would be like you picking up a DSLR camera, a digital camera for the first time after never taking a photo. You're not going to be able to take a better picture than an actual photographer that understands the layering of images and the coloring and the angles. Like, there's so much dynamics that go into art that real artists are not going to be threatened by everyday people picking up programs. Well, then let's let's go a little one step further down that. When you look at art, do you think there should be some sort of level of technical expertise in the artist because what we're talking about here is is sort of removing that technical expertise in favor of the idea expertise. Okay, I I'm going to pick on Carl and I like Carl. Carl, I'm sorry I got to do this to you. But his novel read like really, really similar. And Carl is the writer of the Carl book. Carl Stedman, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, Carl Stedman. And, and I encourage people to read his book. Um, but you don't sound like you're strongly encouraging. His well, book. It's not really his book. <laughs> I mean, but the thing is, it, it's, it read really, really similar to stories that my nine-year-old writes, where <laughs> like there's, there's characters in the book that you never meet. They just appear. There's no backstory. The, the story is about an AI taking over a spaceship uh, because it wants the same rights as humans. But it never describes. Like 2001. Yes. Mm-hmm. It never describes the spaceship. It never describes space. It doesn't tell you anything. It, it's like the whole story was written in bullet points and the bullet points got removed. So like that, that is a long way from, from reading an actual novel that is by a human, kind of like what Erica described. Now, there are people making those type of novels in partnership with AI. And those people spend years with AI flushing those novels out and they always publish in partnership. They're not tricking anybody. They're not fooling anybody. Not to say that Carl did, but everybody in AI lets people know that this is what they're doing. Erica, you're, so you're not worried that you can be replaced on Publicola. Well, here's the thing. I mean, I, you know, uh, People uh, sort of make fun of, you know, the sort of basic form of journalism sometimes because, you know, like AP style, um, because it can sort of be replicated. But the work of doing journalism is investigating, it's interviewing people, it's having empathy um, and it's uh, and it's describing it's bringing people in to the story and making them relate and care. And no, I don't think an AI that's, you know, making up quotes. I mean, I've made up a lot of stories on ChatGPT <laughs> just for the hell of it. And um, I started sending actually invitation responses. I had ChatGDP write my invitation <laughs> responses. Essentially, kept telling me to make sure my values were aligned with whatever the party's values are. Yeah, yeah. So, so no, I'm I, I'm not worried because I think and I but I do think it leads to the devaluing of journalism because people you know have no idea what you know what journalism is or what we do. Um, and so I think that you know 
uh, people, you know, on the outside of of arts and journalism and writing and whatever, you know, may think that this, you know, that we can be replaced. But I, but I, I don't think it's that easy. All right, we're only we're wrapping up our t- show here. One quick one word response on your smile, Mike Davis. Bumper shoot it's coming back. back. Absolutely, Joanne. Bruce Springsteen with an asterisk because of the way the um, tickets were sold. I'm going in and Seattle. You're going to be Portland. making payments on those tickets for a while, I assume. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Erica. Uh, the, Ovid's The Metamorphoses at the Rep. This is the final weekend. Go check it out. All right, that was Week in Review. I'm Mike Lewis filling in for Bill Radke. Thank you, uh, Erica. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you, Mike Davis, for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, Mike. Good job. <laughs>